0: Hello and welcome to Straight Talk, Supply Chain Insights, the podcast for your supply chain leader who is on the go and wants to be in the know. And now your host, Laura Ciceri. Good morning, depending upon where you are in the world. Today, we're going to talk about agility and the agile supply chain. It's very fascinating to me when I talk to people about what defines supply chain excellence and they'll say, an excellent supply chain is efficient. And what I want you to think about today is, is an efficient supply chain always effective? And is there a need for us to think about agility as it ties to supply chain flows? So my name is Laura Ciceri, and I'm going to be leading the webinar. And I'm joined by Regina Dedman on the back end, and she's the coordinator of director of client services for Supply Chain Insights and we will share the slides and we will share the recording of this webinar and we encourage you to share it with others i also would love to see your questions i'll try to take questions it's always better to have a dialogue than to just have you know one person talking so please put your questions in the question box and look for an email from regina on the recording and the sharing of slides So let's start with the definition of agility. When people say they wanna have an agile supply chain, I say, well, what does that mean? And many times they'll look at me like I'm the dumbest analyst in the world, and that may be true, but you gotta start with the goal in mind. And so I define agility in the research I'm gonna share with you as the ability to have the same cost, quality, and customer service. So let's go through that again, cost, quality, and customer service. You may have different inventory levels, Given the levels of demand and supply volatility, and to really measure agility, you've got to be able to understand demand and supply volatility. What I see in my demand benchmarking is demand error has increased for some of the clients I work with two to three times, and order latency, order latency, the time from a customer buying something to the translation to an order has increased three to five times since I used to run manufacturing and distribution centers in the 1980s. Now, when we evolved supply chain planning in the 1990s, order latency was much less and demand error was much less. And often the drive for tight coupling of ERP to APS drives efficiency, but not necessarily agility. So agility, the ability to have the same cost, quality, and customer service, given the levels of demand and supply volatility. Now, in contrast, efficiency in our research is defined as a supply chain that is able to produce items at the lowest cost per unit. And there are trade-offs between cost and customer service, and also between cost and our ability to be responsive. So efficiency is not equal to agility. There are trade-offs and a responsive supply chain is also very different as a goal. When we design supply chain, we've got to design with the goal in mind. And so the tactics that we use to be agile are different than the tactics we use to be efficient and different than the tactics that we use to be responsive. And a responsive supply chain is a supply chain that operates with short cycles. Responsive supply chains are really needed in things like vaccines. Uh, I've got very high demand volume. I know what the lift is going to be, but I don't know the timing. Bathing suits, suntan lotion, uh, very, very high error promotions. So things that are seasonal uh, we know that we're going to have very high demand but we're just unclear at the timing requires a responsive supply chain in contrast things that are very high volume and very predictable requires an efficient supply chain things that are not predictable and yet still important to the company and are low volume need to have an agile supply chain so Products that require agility are things like a new product launch or perhaps a specialized product for a special target audience or a um, very specialized good that, you know, we're working on for growth. So efficiency doesn't equal agility. Responsive doesn't equal agility. We've really got to design the supply chain recognizing that every supply chain has four to five different flows that need to either be designed to be efficient, lowest cost, responsive, short cycles, or agile, which is really very focused on the ability to have a reliable response given the level of demand and supply volatility. So when we talk about agility, we're talking about postponement strategies. We're talking about sensing demand, translation of demand. We're talking about different types of analytics. And we'll talk today about the tactics and the case studies that help people to be more agile. So the first warning is agility is not free. So you will never have the lowest cost per item in an agile supply chain. However, if you look at the waste associated with trying to stuff products through an efficient supply chain that really need to be agile, often you'll find that you've got an awful lot of waste by not having the right goal in mind for products that require redesign to be agile. So why does it matter? So in recent research, we asked companies to describe their supply chain. We said, what descriptors would you use to describe your supply chain today? And we've done this research for three years and it doesn't change much, but this is the recent data. And most companies will say that their supply chain is very controlled, okay? It works in a pull-based manner, half the time push-based. But look down at the bottom, one third of companies feel that their supply chain works well. Most feel that there's great room for improvement and they want a supply chain that is proactive, that is more agile. And as we look five years out, which is not that far away, We're really needing to work in the supply chain to be more aligned, to take our processes out of the fixed function of source, make and deliver and align teams outside in to be able to serve customers from the customer back and to drive agility because a lot of the products that are low volume and lumpy demand are the products that we need to drive growth and to be proactive. And we're seeing the evolution of proactivity and. Prescriptive and cognitive analytics that not only give us exceptions, but give us advice and insight about what to do about it. So, as we think about the redefinition of supply chain for tomorrow, we must learn from the past to unlearn, to rethink how to drive and improve a supply chain response. Because, quite frankly, you know, supply chain started in 1982 when we first used source, make, and deliver together in our research. And what's happened is we've evolved supply chain practices to really only focus on the efficient supply chain. And what's happened is most companies have basically added products, added channels, added regions, which has given them more products which are on the long tail of the supply chain, and they struggle to really be able to drive agility. So when we think about agility, cornerstone to this is sales and operations planning. And when I talk about sales and operations planning, I'm talking about being market driven, very focused on the ampersand, not necessarily sales, not necessarily operations. And if you've read my research on SNOP, it's the balance between sales and operations. It's the ability to look at the ampersand of what we do to improve agility, things like push-pull decoupling points and postponement strategies, and the ability to design the supply chain to be agile. Now, case studies I'm going to talk about today are building demand networks. You know, I teach, and when I teach, I ask people to draw a supply chain. And I've probably had a 100 people come through my classes, and all people start with supply. They don't start with demand. When we have demand networks, the ability to use channel data, the ability to translate channel data, the ability to decrease order latency, we improve agility. And this is extremely important where we have the ability to get early warning about what products are selling, things like new product launch. It tells us when to make that second production run or when to tightly couple supply to a contract manufacturer in addition value stream mapping i'm going to go through a case study by clorox where we worked with clorox to look at which products in the value stream needed to be efficient which needed to be responsive and which needed to be agile clorox had bought burt's bees traditionally clorox had made bleach products and home cleaning products which were very high volume but when they bought Burt's Bees and when they invested in healthcare products, they needed an agile supply chain and they had to train their general managers to think about value stream mapping. I'm also gonna go through a case study for product rationalization. I find that many companies will add products very readily but have a tough time getting rid of products. And so part of our ability to be agile is to be able to align the product portfolio to manage that long tail, and many companies struggle to sustain that. I'm gonna give you a case study of a client that was able to do that for eight years, and it actually helped them to minimize the issues that they were struggling with with their supply chain. They entered into bankruptcy, and product rationalization helped them to move through bankruptcy to be able to align the supply chain to be more effective. I also am going to talk to you about platform rationalization. My favorite uh, case study on platform rationalization was Campbell's uh, six years ago when Campbell's looked at what they were putting into soup and asked the question of why did they have 33 cuts of carrots when really they only needed two to three. What had happened was they had basically added products and Every product had a different specification for materials. And as a result, they had a lot of materials that were very complex and they worked on platform rationalization, looking at the R&D teams and the supply teams and how they were going to improve platform rationalization. We're also gonna talk about digital manufacturing. Uh, AGCO and Rockwell Automation are case studies in my report on digital manufacturing where we are looking at when do we take factories down? Should we take factories down for service based upon meantime failure? Or should we sense the health and wellness of the lines and take it down when we actually need to do maintenance? And then I'm also gonna talk about a case study from Shell on demand-driven material planning. There's a lot of work that is going into clients thinking about DDMRP And DDMRP is one tactic to improve agility. We made a mistake when we closely coupled MRP to forecast. Uh, DDMRP looks at how do we buffer, how do we translate demand into materials. And so today what I'm gonna do is talk about case studies and tactics. This will be followed by a report next week in our newsletter where I'll go through each of these case studies in great detail. What I'm trying to do is to help people to understand agility and to learn from case studies about how to improve agile supply chains. However, I'll warn you, no company has all of these tactics nailed down. In fact, what I see is that different companies have different approaches. So let's start with the long tail. One of the reasons why we really need agility is the red the anything but normal distribution long tail. So if you plot your products and you plot them by sales volume on the y-axis and frequency in which you see them on order lines on the x-axis, you'll find you have products that have very high volume that are frequently ordered. These are products with normal distribution. They can be modeled pretty easily in advanced planning technologies. And when I say a normal distribution, I want you to think back to statistics class that you've got a bell curve and traditional statistics model these products very well. And in, the, and in this normal distribution, we can be very focused on the efficient supply chain. Demand is very predictable. The translation of demand is very easy. We don't have to put as much work into push pull decoupling points and postponement strategy. But as we add products for growth and we enter into this red area, this distribution is anything but normal. And so the traditional techniques within advanced planning don't work so well here. And what we have a need for is the ability to sense the market data quickly and drive a response through buffer strategies of inventory and either materials or finished goods, holding materials back into semi-finished good states, and the ability to really look at value stream networks, to be able to look at mapping. Buffers in the long tail are extremely important. We have two primary buffers in the supply chain, manufacturing and inventory. And in many companies, we don't have the buffer of manufacturing anymore because of the focus on return on invested capital and the fact that many of these assets are very heavily utilized. So these agile techniques make the most sense in the red tail area. And so as we think about this, this is a case study from a client where I've worked and it's pretty consistent for many clients that I work with where we've got consistent forecastable demand of 874 items. Now you'll see that these items are the blue area and they're half the number of items of inconsistent demand and these Consistent forecastable items represent 77% of the volume and 74% of the net sales. So you might say, well, why don't we just get rid of the red items? But it's not that easy because the red items are typically the growth items. They're the items that we're putting into the market to be promoted and stir excitement or to drive new product launch. And 64% of the volume for this company was very forecastable with a 55% error. And, you know, that's without any demand planning. Now, the interesting thing was because this client applied the wrong set of analytics to do demand and they didn't really deal with the long tail, they introduced 14% additional error uh, with the techniques used versus looking at how could they manage inconsistent demand, which was 1,700 items representing 23% of the volume and 26% of the net sales. So when you step back from this and you look at that red area, you've got to say, if I had a demand network and I could translate demand point of sale data, channel data, distributor data with less friction and see the channel quicker, I could reduce demand latency by weeks and be able to understand markets and drive a response. If in that long tail, I could really design a supply chain for that long tail to be able to look at buffer strategies, postponement, push-pull decoupling points, alternate supply, alternate manufacturing. I could improve agility. If I took that long tail and I looked at product rationalization, do I need 1700 items? If I have the ability to work cross-functionally to say, Which of these items should I keep and simplify that product mix? I can improve agility. If I had the ability to do platform rationalization of materials, I could improve that agility. So the agile supply chain is not what you need to apply to all products. You need to apply the agile supply chain to the low volume, high demand error products and really work on organizational alignment to be able to say that a supply chain has different flows within it. Most supply chains have five to seven distinctly different flows. And as we think about flows, we've got to think about strategy and we've got to think about patterns of demand. And these flows really are what defines what products should be in an efficient supply chain, which products should be in a responsive supply chain, and which products should be in an agile supply chain. In organizations today, the biggest gap is between marketing and operations. And one of the issues is that we don't really have these discussions with marketing to talk about how the product flows really need to map. And so marketing is very focused on new product launch, trade promotions, seasonal products, excitement in the field. And they are very frustrating that the supply chain consistently underdevelops and markets and under delivers in these areas. It requires education. And one of the case studies I'm going to talk about is Corax that actually started with their general managers to train them on how to think about flows and how to think about the markets when the general managers went to market to really think about how to drive agility and to have a reliable response. Also we have gaps between sales and operations and many organizations are sales driven not market driven and there's a big difference between being sales driven and market driven sales will typically have the highest bias and error as we talk about consensus forecasting and will bring bias and error into the supply chain which needs to be managed by forecast value add and putting discipline into this to be market driven so let's look at some case studies that i'm currently writing in my report the first piece of research that we did at Supply Chain Insights was on sales and operations planning. And we were trying to understand how mature sales and operations planning processes drove value. And so we had 25 different descriptors in which people could choose S&OP and how it drove value. And we found 80% of companies had some S&OP processes. And one of the things that's changed in the last decade is that people have multiple processes. The average is four. But only 40 percent rated themselves mature on these processes and when they did rate themselves mature they had twice the level of agility the ability to deal with the long tail and 46 percent better cross-functional alignment so you might say well what's mature and i define mature as the ability to have balance between the sales and the operations really focused on the ampersand to be able to look at design to be able to look at inventory structures and form and function of inventory, to be able to look at how do we translate demand and manage demand in a series of tactics. So we'll talk more about SNOP later in the year, but just because you have an SNOP process doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be agile. If you're out of balance, very focused on S or very focused on OP, And not really balance between the s and the op to be able to drive the supply chain response you won't improve agility but if you're able to drive balance think through those inventory strategies become more market driven to sense what customers really need then you'll definitely improve agility now i want to go through some case studies one of the first case studies i want to talk about is lenovo and this is a case study where Lenovo built a demand network called IBAT, and this is one of two case studies of building a demand network. I've been an industry analyst for 15 years. I've talked about demand networks for many, many years, but there are only two demand networks that I've actually followed that drove value. Most of the time, people will take channel data and they'll use it for sales forecasting, but they won't really design a demand network to sense and translate and to be able to drive markets. So IBAT was basically used by Lenovo before the acquisition and spinoff by IBM to say, how do I sense demand in the channel and how do I drive price? Because what was happening was sales would stuff the channel, computers were very price sensitive and when they stuff the channel, the price of the item would drop and the distributors would be unhappy asking for payment for the value loss on the items. And so sales continually stuffing the channel was causing a lot of friction between distributors and a lot of issues with uh, IBM or Lenovo having to take back products. So what they did was they looked at how could they look at channel demand and build a replenishment system that was very focused on a region. And they couldn't really find software at this time in the market, so they built their own at IBM and they had the luxury to do that. Now today we have supply chain operating networks which allow us to use demand and to be able to translate it in meaningful ways across one-to-many and many-to-many networks but it took them seven years to roll out a demand network. And the technology was the easy part. The tough part was changing sales behaviors and to really get an understanding of how order latency changes and improvements improve the supply chain. So as a result, they were able to manage channel inventory, Be able, they were able to manage price declines, They had to work with sales to change behavior. And if the distributor used the IBAT recommendation, IBAT being the name of the system, then the inventory was price protected. So they changed the incentives to really drive improvement. Now let's take another case study. This is a case study of World Kitchen. World Kitchen, at this point in time, this was the start of the decade. This is an old case study had a problem in that they had had so much product proliferation if you think about all the mixers and toasters in your house you know we want them to be in colors now we don't just want black or chrome and we want specialized items and so what happened was world kitchen had doubled the number of items on the balance sheet and that was one of the factors that drove them into bankruptcy So they started and they said, well, let's start with rationalizing products. Let's take all our products and let's look at how many products represent percent of sales. And let's start by grouping them by contributions to sales. And so we have three groupings. And then they said, let us start with an item rationalization schema. So the SEVA rating is the contribution to sales. And it looks at. EVA with sales and the gross sales rating of one, two, three. Let's look at which products should we keep, which products should we get rid of, and which products should we kill. So this case study was actually able to be maintained through the bankruptcy and the uh, putting the company back on uh, the right path for financial, and it was monthly. And the reason I really like this case study was it was cross functional and finance played a major role in this. But there are three elements that I think are very unique. One was the focus was not on killing products, it was on making products successful. So when this happened, the marketing CMO became the arbitrator. And if a product was in the keep areas, there was no discussion. If the products were in the review areas, the general managers for those particular brands would have to come up with a plan to improve the productivity, the sales EVA for those products and to try to drive volume. So we're looking at the intersection here of profitability and gross sales. If an item was in a kill area, then the group had two months to basically move it from a kill box to a review box or it was mandatory kill. The CMO at any point in time could say, no, I want to give grace that this product's not going to be killed. The other thing that I think is really interesting about this case study is that they didn't let perfect get in the way of good. Often when I work with companies and they're working on item rationalization because it's awfully hard to get to this data, they will struggle that the data is not perfect. And World Kitchen was able to say, I'm going to assess this, I'm going to agree on it directionally, and we're gonna get better every month. And the discussion around the items was what really drove the value. To have a framework, to agree that perfect's not gonna get in the way of good, And that there was an arbitrator. So a monthly process review, the CMO is an arbitrator, forward momentum, team did not let perfect get in the way of good, process on strategy and contribution, and a focus on growth and keeping products. This allowed them to sustain the item rationalization process. One of the things that I see that will often kill the item rationalization process is the lack of a systemic process, the lack of an arbitrator, and the focus that the data's gonna be perfect. This data will never be perfect. And a discussion on growth versus killing products. So this was one of my favorite case studies. What happened out of this was World Kitchen was able to change the response from an efficient to a more agile supply chain and drive the company to improve the results out of bankruptcy. Another case study I want to talk about today is value stream mapping, and this is a Clorox case study. So, Clorox, in the time that I've worked with Clorox, has actually increased sales six times, and they've bought companies and they've started regional supply chains. And They had a SVP by the name of James Foster who wanted to be demand-driven, wanted to really focus on serving the customer. But he was struggling with the fact that Clorox had bought a lot of products that didn't really act like traditional household products, which were very efficient. So what he did was he basically started to train the general managers to start with business strategy, then design value chain segmentation, And then talk about, you know, how to deliver it. So one of the things that they started working on with the general managers was grouping products to be able to look at what was important. Was speed important? And if so, it needed to be responsive. Was service important? If so, then it needed to be more responsive. Was it promoted related? Then it needed to be more responsive. And then what they did was they worked on how did they translate the needs of the market and the needs of the strategy to be able to drive products that were efficient, that were very focused on costs, so very high functioning lines, high asset utilization, focus on finished goods. How did they balance the products that needed to be responsive, which were very focused on speed? And how did they then balance what needed to be agile? So this is a case study of taking the flows, looking at which products fit which response, and actually mapping these into strategies across make, source, and deliver so that people were clear on how to really go to market. Now, what happened is yearly they would get together and they would look at how many flows they had, what were the strategies, and quarterly the supply chain team composed of five people would start to remap products based upon how they were shifting in the market. So a product in January might need to be responsive and maybe by December was efficient. Likewise, you could see the shift of an efficient product which needed to become more agile. So they would start to work the mapping of the flows to be able to look at inventory strategies, where products were manufactured, which products were manufactured inside the company versus contract manufacturing, sourcing strategies, because sourcing strategies for an agile supply chain are very different than efficient supply chain. And they would also look at promotion. If you've got an agile product, it may make, not make sense to be promoted because you've already got so much variability why add variability on a promoted product on, on top of an already difficult uh, demand pattern. So the discussion with the GMs was really beneficial and they started a training class where the general managers would actually go through the training class and these concepts and would map the supply chain yearly. So we've talked about Three techniques. We've talked about sales and operations planning, which helps to drive alignment. The focus on the ampersand helps us to define inventory strategies, form and function of inventory, buffer strategies. We've talked about product rationalization, finished goods rationalization, a systemic process that can happen monthly with an arbitrator, a focus on driving growth and we've talked about flows within the supply chain and tactics to drive the flows. And each of these cases, what we're seeing is the choice between a responsive supply chain, an efficient supply chain, and an agile supply chain. So supply chain effectiveness is not necessarily efficiency, it requires a choice and working on the tactics. Now, the last case study I'm gonna share with you today is a case study from Shell. And if you think about Shell, global company, one of the top five companies of the world, uh, they were focused on demand-driven strategies. And Nick, who spoke at our conference, actually was a pioneer in the implementation of demand sensing. He worked with a technology company to use order patterns to be able to change rules-based consumption, to translate demand forecast into inventory requirements. It was very successful at that. And then what he was beginning to look at is how could he take demand and work on the translation of demand into material supply and really be able to orchestrate. And Nick started to work on DDMRP. And for those of you who, don't know, DDMRP is a system that allows us to take order patterns, translate order patterns into material buffers and material strategies to be able to better align material bind. The traditional MRP actually closely coupled forecast MRP, which really doesn't work very well. And so this is a pattern between DDMRP and the historic view of Nick and what Nick was able to do was to work with his leadership team to think holistically to think about high volume products that were very stable and to look at excess stock which really had a very high unpredictable element and look at the number of SKUs that were not predictable and to be able to look at the impact of DDMRP. There's a case study on my website, and there will be one in the report we'll publish next week that shows Nick's results of DDMRP. Demand-driven material requirements planning is a form of demand translation to shorten the latency of the signal into materials. So. Today what we've done is, we've talked about some case studies to improve agility. Next week we'll be publishing a report which will have seven case studies that really talk about different tactics. But the most important thing you need to do is start with strategy. You've got to ask yourself, what defines supply chain excellence? And hopefully by now you know that the most effective supply chain may not be efficient. Uh, Efficient may not be effective because not all supply chains are high volume and predictable. And then what you've got to do is design and implement agility strategies, whether it's value stream mapping, product rationalization, platform rationalization, DDMRP, demand-driven manufacturing, inventory strategies. This all gets to how can I buffer, translate demand to be able to be more agile? And then educate the steering groups on the value of outcomes. In these case studies, one of the consistent elements is an education of the functions of marketing and sales to understand and appreciate the value of efficiency. Most of the times, Uh, financial teams only want to talk about efficiency, but sales and marketing strategies will need us to produce products that are low volume, very lumpy demand, and we've got to help them with how we need to design the supply chain for agility to be able to accomplish this. So I'd love to see your questions. You can put your questions in the question box, and uh, let's take some questions now. So as we think about trade wars and tax and tariff and what's happening in the world today, how do we think about agility? Well, I think one of the, this is a question, and I think one of the opportunities for us to think about agility and tax and tariff is buffers. We know certain regions will have less friction. We know certain regions are gonna have more friction. We know what's happening with Brexit. We know what's happening with China. What If we can sense and respond with less latency, if we can have less latency of data, if we can have the ability to be more predictable in our analytics, then we can much better uh respond. Additionally, if we have inventory buffer strategies that allow us to buffer, that helps us as well. One of the things we know is that the ports are going to get worse. Uh, in terms of unloading times with uh, slow steaming and the chassis issues. And uh, we also know that, you know, we are going to need to buffer around the ports. One question is, how do I start to do flow chain mapping? Well, you start with mapping the items by volume, by demand error, by frequency on the order, and look at the patterns, and then asking yourself what are the natural flows in your supply chain. I worked with a company once that had 150,000 products, and they tried to tell me they had 150,000 supply chains. And so I said, no, 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 that's not the way you think about flow chain mapping. So then they said, well, we've got 15 different divisions, and we've got 21 regions. So therefore, I've got a regional and I've got a divisional supply chain. I'm like, no, no, that's not the way to think about it either. What we have to think about in global supply chains are what are the underlying patterns, uh, rhythms and the cycles of the supply chain that are driven by demand and supply volatility and volume and then start to work backwards, much like the Clorox case study. So it requires mapping and it requires understanding to be able to get started. And one of the things that I'm proud of the Clorox team on is they really got into the base definitions. They trained the base definitions and they also didn't get caught up in a lot of fancy tools. So the work that the Clorox team did didn't have a lot of technology. It was really much more about you know, five people looking at those rhythms and cycles, being able to do that mapping and to be able to drive improvement. Thank you for your questions. We will be sharing the slides. We will have a a report that we're going to be able to publish next week. I have one more question. How would you implement a buffer strategy in a clinical supply chain? Well, in a clinical supply chain where we're looking at how we best service patients, we have the ability to look at substrates and additives, and we have the ability to look at how the applications are actually administered. So if we can have the focus on semi-finished goods postponement, uh, if we can have the instructions to be multilingual, sometimes I see in clinical supply chains, people will not actually have multilingual instructions. I won't really address postponement and a clinical supply chain is very difficult because it is very high volume requiring, I mean very low volume, very high demand volatility requiring agility. Well this is part of our monthly webinar series. We do these every month sharing our research with you. And we also are trying to drive a guiding coalition for business leaders to drive supply chain improvement, to think about supply chains differently. We have our annual event called Imagine in September 3rd through the 6th, It'll be in Chicago this year. And in this, we actually bring case studies and we challenge people in facilitated workshops to be able to imagine a supply chain revolution and what it will look like. We focus on Supply Chain 2030, and we ask people to think differently and drive new outcomes. Now, this conference is different in that it doesn't have sponsorships, and uh, technologists and line of business leaders are equal, trying to imagine the supply chain. And there's also no pay for play uh, presentations. I pick all the presentations, and the focus is really on forward-looking use of techniques and technologies. We also do the Shaman Circle for business leaders. Uh, If you'd like to join this, this is a monthly call where we have peer networking for a line of business leaders to drive innovation. This is closed to technologists and consultants and allows people to share freely. We do two share groups, one on the Network of Networks, which is looking at B2B. Uh, One of the things we want to introduce this year in the Network of Networks is a rating schema that can help to rate companies on how effectively they're using electronic commerce, the adoption of standards, and be able to drive some identification of best practices in B2B networks. One of the things that I'm amazed by is, you know, we've talked about value networks, but when I map how many companies have really deployed ADI or uh, supply chain operating networks, we've not made a lot of progress you know we don't have a lot of really deep connections we have a lot of portals we have a lot of point to point connections we have a lot of spreadsheets but we're really boxed in we're portaled to death and the data is not portable and there's no system of record and as a result it's very difficult for us to work with trading partners we also have a demand share group which is focused on how will new techniques and demand planning improve our ability to translate and sense demand. We're looking at DDMRP, we're looking at cognitive computing, machine learning. We're looking at how do we measure demand accuracy? How do we measure bias? How do we, where are people on forecast value add? How can we get the entire organization to use demand? And then we have an online training class that has just kicked off where we actually have people in an online class to imagine the future. So thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Please follow our research. I write for uh, Forbes, I write for LinkedIn, and I write on a blog called The Supply Chain Shaman. I hope to see you in our share groups or on our next event. Thank you very much.